Welcome, welcome. Welcome to another episode of The Machine is the Message. And uh, with myself, Alan Smith, Patrick Keenan, and today, the, the mentor, the orator, the community organizer, uh, the all kinds of things, the oracle, uh, Michael Anton Dilla. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you. That's a lot of ors. Um, I, will, I will try to live up to them or live them down one way or the other. Um, That's what I was going for. There you go. Thank boom. you. Boom. 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 Um, so forthcoming comedy career, I can see. Um, I'm going to start the stand-up <laughs> work. Um, well, listen, great, great to see you guys again and so soon. Um, I must say, uh, you know, Pat, since you reached out um, and uh, invited me um, to talk last week, um, I feel like, you know, we've, I mean, only seen each other twice in person, but in a space of weeks. And it's got me to seeing you again uh, in person, Alan, which was a lovely uh, additional gift. And uh, feel like, you know, I, I could use I can use lots more of that. Uh, feel feels almost like the old days when you guys uh, were were with others. The moment uh, I remember you guys down in Louis Fischoff's old building. Uh, I don't know if you've been down now that it's the Ace Hotel. Yeah, Ace Hotel. That's right. And, you know the waterworks is across the. Yeah, uh, that waterworks uh, is going to be a cool space when it opens up. I can't wait. Impact Kitchen. You got other ship. It's the whole like wellness corridor now, yeah. uh, which is nice. Yeah, so it's cool. Anyway, so again, thanks, uh, thanks for the invitation. Um, you know, I did. But that is, uh, uh, sorry, Michael. That is a good plug for the need for in person. Though this is a podcast, it is in service yeah. of a community, and communities are about being together. In person, it matters. So, uh, it's yeah, it does. So, I mean, you know, the the great advantage we have um, in all of all of our online capability not to minimize that is, is that it makes possible things that wouldn't be otherwise but but those things to your point are, are just no substitute at all for uh being in person and the kind of high fidelity uh experience that only being in person can can afford us um i'm such a huge huge not just believer in that but i i, I so so desperately and bodily need that kind of uh connection with people um and actually that's that's thematic uh or or it will become thematic um on some of the stuff that uh that i'll want to talk with you guys about today um so just um to kick it off um is is a requisite uh slide of uh william gibson and uh, it's there in part because um i was meditating on his ever-present uh, quote about the future um and uh, and i'll have have a thought to offer about that but just before we get there i want to make a little side personal and toronto note about um about this guy which is uh when i first started working in design in 1996 um i was working in a small firm um that was on church street um near shooter um downtown and uh, you may remember that further down toward Queen Street, there used to be a row of pawn shops, which are mostly gone. Um, and I've always sort of had a curiosity about pawn shops in general and watches in particular. Um, so I would pop in these pawn shops every once in a while. And one day I popped into one quite small, narrow, long, uh, just aligned to the counter. 
And there was one other guy um, further down the counter looking, uh, looking at stuff. And uh, I noticed him and, and then I, I got a better look at him and I was like, oh, I know that guy. And, uh, you know, being how I am with people, uh, I, I sort of sidled up to him and I said, hey, do we know each other? I, I feel like I feel like I recognize you. And he looked at me and he was like oblivious and was like, I, I don't think so. And like, I'm trying to place him. I'm trying to locate. I kind of feel like he's he, he he's a guy that I had a course with when I was, you know, starting my graduate work and uh, trying to, you know, I said, you know, I said, what's your name? And he says, uh, Bill. And I'm like, you know, it's not jogging anything. <laughs> no. So I turn around, I finally give up and I turn around and I walk toward the door. And as I touch the door, it comes to me and it's William Gibson. And of course I've recognized his picture from book jackets, uh, have been a reader for a long time, but yeah, he, he, he says his name is Bill, uh, you know. Uh, so anyway, just a little personal uh, William Gibson memory. Yeah, um, and for those who don't know, William Gibson has sort of um, forwarded thinking about the future of technology, especially like the, you know, the web, cybernetics, like how are we going to change as humanity? Notable titles are like Snow Crash and um, uh, uh, Neuromancer. And has just informed so much of our pop culture. I mean, even now, The Peripheral, I would say, is one of the best television shows in the last um, mm -hmm. yeah, number of right. years. Yep. Um, I, I remember I recently hearing a, something about him writing this and him not even feeling like a technologist, saying like right. these were these were just ideas that were just like kind of coming to him and felt like they were where we were going, as opposed to it being you know a very concerted. Uh, hey, I'm I'm from tech, and I see this is coming, and I want to put it in a story for everyone else. Yeah, yeah, I don't know any detail about that. I've heard the same, Alan. Um, but um, but to your point, Pat, right? He's indelibly associated with uh, certainly some of the vocabulary with which we talk about technology, um, cyberspace uh, being one, um, but many many others, and of course. You know, again, the ubiquitous quote, which um, is often rendered, and I'm not even sure where, where it actually was ever written down, if it was, um, is the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. I believe we have quoted that quote on this podcast. You know, before. like it is, it is, it is one of those quotes, um, like the Arthur C. Clarke one about any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I think those two phrases, uh, his and Gibson's, like have occurred in more slide decks, um, at least more tech-oriented slide decks than than perhaps any other two quotes. Um, but I was thinking about it recently because. Um, uh, I was thinking about a actually what what does it mean because um, and I, I, I got there because I was thinking about um, about where we are with AI where we are in the AI play so to speak um, and people are still talking about like the future um, that is still coming with AI that we're not quite quite in um, anyway I started reflecting on Gibson and I started thinking about um, you know whether we 
I don't, I don't know how people variously understand that phrase that um, it, it, it's here, it just isn't evenly distributed. But it occurred to me that, um, you know, there's a sense in which, uh, especially with technology and emerging technology, um, that we are already in the future, in the sense that um, the, the things that are already present are already consequential. Of course, there will be more to come. Of course, things will change and be different. Um, but you know, I don't think we should talk about uh, uh, AI, any part of it, as if it's in some far off future. Um, I think the future that is going to be caused by our present is, in some senses, you know, very much already present. Um, and we're already living inside it. And part of that also is because, you know, especially with things like AI, but all things technological that arrive in a present, they back up into our history. So, you know, for some people, AI and the phrase artificial intelligence and some of the other, you know, popular phrases these days are fairly new. But, you know, artificial intelligence, even as a phrase, is not new, right? I mean, o over 75 years old. Um, and some people say that the phrase uh, really emerged um, around a uh, six, six, eight week workshop that happened at Dartmouth um, in, I think, 1953. Um, and uh, at any rate, a um, bit of history. But I, I wanted to open our thinking today about thinking about where, where we are in the future. Um, and of course, Reminding ourselves also that the future isn't singular. Um, uh, we are we are hurtling into futures, um, you know, which uh, into which we drag our many pasts, um, and uh, there's stuff to be mindful of there. Um, okay, how about uh, how about the next slide? That's that's a big idea. Like before we move <laughs> on, you know, it's like let's not skate over that. You know, sure. that's like a whoa big idea. You know. First, where are we in the future? And second, the future isn't singular. Um, where both of those are like, you know, sort of making me dig for a minute. I'm like, hold on, hold, hold, hold on, right? You know, they re really make you, um, that makes you think, Michael, and this is kind of your job here and <laughs> in general. Um, but yeah, so I'm not going to elaborate on those. I'm going to let you keep rolling. Okay. I just wanted to call out that, you know, those aren't small phrases. Those are big phrases. There's interesting stuff in there. And hopefully we're able to unpack some more of it as we go. So, okay, keep going, man. Yeah, okay. but I would I would want to just pop in and say, uh, totally makes sense. Uh, and that so much of our future is informed by fiction. And so that's why I think that the Gibson mm -hmm. thing makes sense is like, we literally have a tricorder, right? And, you know, we've yeah. just released the communicator. And so right. these things don't happen because the science fiction writer saw something that was about to happen. They happened because the engineer watched Star Trek. And that is the crazy <laughs> thing. And so, yeah. and so uh, Chris Nozzle, a previous colleague, uh, wrote a book called Make It So. It's like about science fiction and design. Yep. And his, yep. his point is science fiction extends the boundaries of design, which to me is, is kind of based on an old Cam uh, Joseph Campbell quote, which is, mythology extends like the known world or something like that but that that's what we're doing and so like you can't have new technology without having new ideas 
from a place of fiction. And so I, I, I totally agree. Yeah. And, and just to double down on that and double down on, on the importance of fiction and writing and the, the tools that we that we get from uh, that that genre, um, one of the one of the most important toolkits I think to our present, um, you know, is is um, you know been in science fiction for a long time, but one of its master practitioners and somebody from whom I've learned a huge amount, just both from reading her work, uh, but also listening to her talk, um, is N.K. Jemison um, and her, her work on world making. Um, and I, I have found world making uh, a really fertile place from which to think about, um, again, how, how we are building futures, how those futures are multiple, um, and, um, and uh, what's both exciting um, and, and worrisome um, in all that. Um, all of the things. What a uh, great reason to read utopian fiction mm -hmm. rather than dystopian fiction mm -hmm. if it makes the future, right? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, indeed. Indeed. Um, okay. So the, the next uh, thing I, I wanted to orient us in, which, uh, which I talked about a little bit last week, um, is this thought um, that I've been having more and more um about um uh what if our artificial intelligence isn't what we think it is um and um and there are a number of ways into this i mean uh one is um that insofar as lots of people uh don't really understand lots about artificial intelligence um beginning with the fact that it's not singular, <laughs> uh, there isn't, um, it is It is actually uh, a cluster um, of things that fit underneath that term. We've started talking uh, about it as if it were one thing, um, partly because we're focused on, on generative AI, um, but of course generative AI is not made up of one thing, but, but many things from uh, neural network technology to large language models um, and a variety of other computing techniques um, and so on. So, um, so I think, you know, part of my, my hope for offering people an idea like what if AI is what we think it is, um is is hitting the pause um long enough so that we can really start thinking about ai um rather than reacting to it or simply following the bouncing ball of the play as it's being presented however it's coming to us largely through media largely through you know quite fever pitchy um journalistic narratives um right which are either playing uh, one of the two major themes, um, the utopian, uh, optimistic, everything is going to change and for the better uh, theme and its very var various variations. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, the existential dread uh, end of the world, um, it's all finally really coming uh, that 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 end of days that we've been promised uh, well, well and truly is here. And if the plague uh, that we've just all lived through wasn't evidence enough of that. Now, now the killer robots really are coming <laughs> to, to get us. Um, and, you know, I, again, you know, uh, you talked about like the importance and power of fiction, Alan, but of course, 
the power of nonfiction, particularly, you know, what we call news and, and journalistic media, um, you know, not to knock it um, entirely, but like, we need to be uh, noticing that narrative um, and storytelling is a big part of how we're consuming uh, information about things like artificial intelligence um, and that it's very much shaping how how we think, um, what we think about and what we don't think about. Um, so again, worth paying attention to. So um, when I say, what if AI isn't what we think it is, what I really mean that to be is an invitation to think about what it is and where it comes from, um, at least for a start. So um, the next uh, sort of thing I wanted to talk about was um, a person who, again, is identified at the wellspring of artificial intelligence, um, Alan Turing. And um, Alan Turing, uh, from which we get a couple of big enduring phrases um, in artificial intelligence, thinking and work. Um, uh, one is the Turing test, which, uh, which is, um, you know, become to be a label for uh, a test that um, a, a, a computer or a system could pass. Um, and if it passed, um, we would declare that system intelligent. Um, the other, um, and if we can just see that lovely uh, woodcut picture of Alan Turing's face, um, on the next slide, there we go. Uh, the other, um, you know, ubiquitous phrase is what Turing actually called this test, um, which is the imitation game. Um, and um, that, that occurs in a 1950 paper that he wrote and was published in the journal, the philosophy journal Mind, uh, which is a very, very easy paper to find. And although it's a little bit on the longer side, it's probably 20 pages, um, uh, and, and it's it's not you know it's not an easy read on the one hand on the other hand it is um, it is readable uh, for for lay readers um, and certainly for people who have any background at all uh, or interest um, in this field you know it really deserves to be read I, I find all the time that um, people have never read it and frankly I hadn't read it uh, myself until about ten years ago um, uh, and. It's, um, it's got all kinds of revelation in it. But the big one, um, and, and the one that I wanted to pay attention to for our purposes, is that um, imitation is, um, is and has for a long time been the paradigm for machine intelligence. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, from the beginning, if, if Turing stands at an important part of the beginning, we've had this idea that machine intelligence uh, was going to imitate human intelligence. And when it did, when it became capable of that level of imitation, we, we were going to declare the arrival of intelligent machines, right? And whether they had consciousness or souls, like this is, you know, more, more metaphysical questions. But, but the important thing is, as long as this conversation has been going on, as long as work has been being done uh, around machine uh, machines that can think, what we have meant by it is that they became equal, at least, to humans as thinkers and and to have human level intelligence. Right. Um, so, which, so Michael, we should we should probably pause and yep. say 
you know, because I think the the Turing test is a really key piece of what you're talking about. And we should explain what the Turing test is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Um, in, in simple terms, uh, the Turing test, you know, proposes, you know, there, there, there's this elaborate description of the imitation game, which, which, which is, is a little too much to sort of burden, burden everyone with. But the, the basic idea is um, that um, if we as humans uh, were to start asking questions of two people um, who we couldn't see um, and, uh, and, and were to make a guess, uh, you know, uh, by the responses um, whether one of one or the other of them um, wasn't human, if we couldn't tell from their responses to our questions, um, then the machine, which was one of the things responding to us, would have passed the test, um, the imitation game test. Um, and you know, um, there, you know, there, there, there are lots of nuances that people have given this test, lots of, you know, sort of additionally rigorous things. But for sure, last November, when OpenAI released ChatGPT, most people who had ever or never encountered something like an AI system encountered something that for their purposes passed the Turing test. Um, that, you know appeared to intelligently respond to all kinds of questions. Um, and, you know, there's, it's fascinating. So again, we can, we can talk more about, you know, what that means and whether uh, lots of people would quibble that it has not passed the Turing test. But I think in most people's experience, you know, people now believe that we, we do or very quickly will have systems that deserve to be called intelligent. Yeah, and 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 for the past number of decades, people have have said no, it hasn't passed the Turing test. And I think to put ourselves in the mindset of Turing, like what do you what do you imagine he was saying when you were talking to machines? Like it was typing, right? Like it was textual, you know, conversation. Oh, yeah. yeah, I think and, that was now, the yeah. that was the way it was like you know originally planned was if you were sending messages you know, sending messages between two rooms where you didn't know who was in the other room. Was it a big giant, you know, Turing machine of, you know, epic intelligence, or was it, you know, a person reading the messages and responding to them? And because they were typed back, you didn't know, you know, what, what it was. That's, that's the intent. And man, have we moved the goalposts on this one, right? Like whenever <laughs> anyone says that we, you know, have not passed the test, I'm just like, what are you waiting for? Right? Like what yeah. needs to be what else do you need to see? Jeez. Well, you know, and you guys who who are, you know, substantially younger than I am, uh, will have perhaps different memories of this than I do. But, you know, the first I think the first computer I saw was a computer that um, that we had in my high school um, that was in kept in a locked room and overseen by one of the math professors. Um, and of course, that computer um, had a teletype type keyboard, a tape reader, um, and a box. And, um, you know, computers in those days did not have screens, right? Um, just the idea of a computer that doesn't have a screen for, for most people, um, is, 
like inconceivable as like how would you understand or use it in any way right I mean, so to your point patrick about what the experience is or what the experience turing imagined was um you know alan gave a pretty good voiceover probably what was in his head um because uh you know who knows there's not much evidence of him certainly imagining you know computer interfaces like like the ones even that that were the early ones of my life um let alone the ones um that that fade into the background um and that we don't even have to see anymore because we're interacting with them through voice or other um other means but uh yeah so um but but i think right i mean um one of the things that's really um remarkable in the experience and um i i don't know where i i read this observation about chat tpt but it was a really important one because i had i had noticed it but i hadn't paid attention to it um and um uh somebody um you know wrote wrote a post and said you know the way in which um when chat gpt responds the text doesn't just appear all at once but sort of line by line. Yeah. Very intentional time. design choice for sure right. with the problem. And, and of Love course, that. it is meant to convey the idea that, that something is responding, right? And that those responses, the thought, you know, we're we're seeing the appearance of the thought. Um, right. Um, and of course. That's not what we're seeing. We're not seeing, thinking. <laughs> uh, we're not seeing a thing that thinks, um, but we are, um, you know, affected by a kind of magic trick um, that, uh, that creates very much the experience of interacting with a thinking kind of thing. Um, I mean, I, that's where I got to kind of jump in because in fact, you are experiencing the probability of next word um, like estimation. So, you can use the API and turn streaming on and like the next word, it won't be like literally the seconds that you see, there's definitely a UX um, decision around what's the minimum and maximum time sure, you'll sure. wait till the next word prints. But the, the technology fundamentally does do next word prediction, which is fair. seeing the thought emerge. Right? Sure, sure, sure. Fair, fair. Yeah. Although again, you know, you're using the word, you, you see the thought. Yeah, yeah, don't see a thought. We see an output, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What that output is, at the very least, we've got a question mark about it. Especially yeah. when mm -hmm. the people who build these systems will tell you that they don't know and can't describe for you in any fine-grained detail what the machine is doing when it produces. Like, you know, it, it's doing next word prediction. Yes, but that just describes how how you know, at the most high level, what the output is. Um, but they honestly cannot tell you how it's doing, how it's making the choices. Um, you know, uh, you, 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 anyway, uh, lots, lots more. To yeah, they can, that. they can tell you, um, it's one of 175 billion parameters, like it would be like, how do you explain how this is working? Here's all the parameters. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's easy. Look, 100 this many billion things that yeah. just come together and then it thinks about it. There you go. Yeah. So, um, you know, if we, if we go ahead to the next slide, you know, like for, um, 
into the last 25 years, um, you know, uh, or, or say, yeah, 25 to, to, to more recently, um, the way the imitation game um, and, um, and the public encounter with artificial intelligence has played out um, has been in the design of systems um, that, um, that compete with humans um, on, um, complex, uh, on complex games. Um, the paradigmatic one being chess, um, and then uh, the, the mathematically even more parameterized and, and therefore complex one being Go. Um, and, uh, and the two systems, one built by IBM, Deep Blue, um, which competed against uh, the grandmaster, chess grandmaster at the time, Gary's highest of the grandmasters uh, at the time, Gary Kasparov, um, and then uh, AlphaGo, uh, which was taken on by, by the system DeepMind, um, now owned by Google um and uh, and and competed with uh one of the top ranked or the top ranked um go player lee siddle um and you know for people who haven't seen the documentary films made of those two uh things um those two events uh really um super important uh parts of the history of artificial intelligence um the uh, the kasparov one is called game over um and uh that's sort of the uh the the posture of game over um we see with with kasparov with his uh, uh head in his hands there um as as he uh encounters defeat um and uh and and, and as uh dramatic sort of um uh encounter uh when we watch uh lisa Dole's encounter with uh with deep mind now the, the thing that I wanted people to notice um, in these two examples is um, that, um, you know, for a long, long time, starting with chess, um, chess has been um, the, uh, uh, you know, ultimate paradigm for uh, um, intelligence. Um, <laughs> Which uh, is right? so weird on its own. It's like, why did we decide it all is. of a sudden it was like, if you're good at chess, you're smart. Right. Sure. I mean, that's so ridiculous. And, yeah. And but true. I feel it. I like, I completely recognize that I even think the same way. If someone's good at chess. Oh, they're smart. Yeah. Like, yeah. And there, and, and there are two things, right. Um, there are two things that account for it. Um, one, um, chess uh chess can be understood mathematically um so it 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 can be modeled computationally um so it's susceptible to building uh, a complex system or a model for a complex system um that that we can be tested um against human players um human players uh you know uh, of chess learn um how to play uh and and of course grandmasters um you know are are capable of you know incredible feats of of memory uh and real-time quote-unquote calculation right so so that that's the non-arbitrary explanation for like why chess right um because um because it was susceptible to computational modeling because um we have uh, identified it historically with you know a, a high level of a certain kind of intellectual achievement um so um 
that said, um, you know, uh, the questions of like how robust the concept of intelligence is that's at work in our thinking about chess playing um, is another matter, right? I mean, what ch chess players are good at or capable of um, uh, as a result of their high degree of skill at chess, um, I'm sure we would all uh, agree, um, is probably got real limits, right? I mean, um, you know, uh, Gary Kasparov um, may or may not uh, know much about lots of other things besides chess. Um, certainly, you know, his very high level of skill at chess um, is not does not suggest on its face that he is um, a highly competent theoretical physicist or uh, yeah, right. some, some of the other sort of paradigms again for for um, things that are that, that are super complex um, and uh, and that people skilled in those fields um, must be highly intelligent. Um, again, you know, part of what I want us to notice here is how we're choosy about what to imitate. Uh, and why. Um, <laughs> and there are historical explanations, and they um, they exclude lots and lots of things that probably uh, deserve um, uh, not only equally, but more so, uh, our consideration um, as demonstrations of intelligence. So like one other thing, so, so for people who are just listening, uh, we see an audience stunned uh, by a defeat of chess, we see a chessboard and we see Kasparov with his head in his hands um, losing to the machine. Yeah, Google the I image think... if you haven't seen it. Gary Kasparov <laughs> moment of defeat. I'm sure it'll pop up. Yeah. So um, one thing to notice here too is how does he feel? Like what is going through his head right now and i think as much as chess is um an evaluation for intelligence and we've used it as like this metric it's also his identity like he everything to him is how good he is at chess and what has he just learned what is yeah. that doing to him yeah um well this is a good um it's a good question and it's something i've thought a lot about and it's again one of the reasons i wanted to share these things and if we go to the next image we see uh, a, a, an image of lisa dole um in the throes of of trying to work out what he's going through yeah uh, he's, he's got a very different expression though he's just got more like a like a wtf like, yeah. are, are you kidding me right now? Did that yeah. just happen? Like, yeah. he's, he's and, more in shock himself rather than in despair and yeah. embarrassment, which is what I see in, in the Kerry Kasparov image. Yeah, well, again, that's why both of these films are, are just really, really valuable to watch um, uh, because um, part of the story of these things, and it's actually, they're really quite painful to watch part of these stories um, is that both of these men, as it turns out, uh, are, are devastated, clearly devastated by the experience. Mm -hmm. um, there's a kind of, there, there's really a kind of violence in, in like, you know, they, they appear to be, um, you know, uh, I mean, you know, we, we use this brutal language, the language of being beaten. Um, they look beaten. 
Um, they, uh, you know, both of them, um, both at the time and after the fact, describe, um, you know, really rough feelings, um, you know, which is dramatic in a bunch of ways, including the fact that, you know, these guys playing games, right? I mean, they're totally secure, privileged people um, playing game that they lost. Um, and, and yet, to one of you um, made, made a point about identity um, and, uh, and their identity um, is really being destabilized. Um, and I think, you know, I think some of us are feeling that now too, when we start to feel or hear about systems that are not only going to be as good at us at the things we do, but maybe better um, and will make us irrelevant. Uh, uh, I, I, I love that connection. And I, I think we need to jump on that for a minute, which yeah. is that this, the broader, you know, sense of humanity, like, you know, Pat, you ask, you know, what is Kasparov feeling in that moment? And then, you know, what is thinking, you know, take that one step further, you know, scale that up, you know, sort of fractal that to, you know, like, what are, what are we starting to feel? What is the defeat that we see on the horizon coming? And how are we protecting ourselves from that? Well, we're moving the goalposts. It passed the Turing test. Oh, it like, you know, passed medical college admission test, passed this test, passed this test, more than 100% human performance on more and more and more and more tests. And we're moving the goalposts because we don't want to admit defeat and even this framing of defeat. And I want to call out that I think that the problem, you know, there's, there's a huge problem here, which is tying one's identity up so much in our actions and activity to the point where if we found out that there was someone better at what we do than us, it would, you know, Michael, in your words, be devastating for us. Mm -hmm. You know, that that is just like a very unhealthy, yet very, very commonplace uh, especially in Western society, the way to be. And the fact that we're, as a society, set up, you know, walking into that trap collectively together with that mindset is uh, indicative of, you know, how, how is it going to feel with everyone on their hands, on their head, with everyone looking like Lee here, being like, what the, when, when the moment comes when we can't move the goalposts anymore, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also important to ask, is it a good game? Like mm -hmm. there's certain games that are not good games anymore. And so here's a question. Why did Lance Armstrong get disqualified? Well, he mm -hmm. was using steroids. Why can't you use steroids? Well, it's not good for you. That's not true. There's all kinds of stuff athletes do that are not good for them. They like inject <laughs> stuff into their muscles. That's not true. Well, it's because it's unfair. Well, why is it unfair? Oh, because like somebody else doesn't get to use it. Well, they could use it too. It's just, it's the same thing as saying like, there's this runner who like is, you know, doesn't have any legs and they got these new artificial legs and they can run faster than anybody else. Can they run in the, in the sprint in the Olympics? No. So our games that are interesting, we're already saying you can't use these assistive devices. And this has not decreased the popularity of chess or go, right? Those are still very popular games. So just because a machine can beat us doesn't mean the game's not fun, but probably increasingly games where computers can win will be less interesting games. 
And so there's all kinds of games that are interesting right now um, that computers can't win. And I just kind of think back to the science fiction side of things, because I think we're seeing science fiction and games are, are areas where humans can play that AI doesn't have an advantage in some way, or it's just, it's, it's more interesting because there's an unknown. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think those are all really great points, Pat. And I think, you know, another thing that we, we could build on there is that um, there are all kinds of games um, that we're able to play and only able to play um, because computers play a role in generating uh, gameplay. Uh, and game space. Um, and, you know, um, like, are all of those games great games? In some sense, you know, probably no. I, I, I tend to think of, of uh, you know, lots of things um, on a dietary metaphor. So um, following that metaphor, I mean, I think there are all kinds of games that people play and that, you know, people have a certain kind of fun playing, but are really kind of like candy and, 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 and junk food. And, Candy Crush was was one of them that came to mind. I'm sure we could uh, name a bunch of others. And then there are, you know, more interesting, deeper um, kinds of games, you know, uh, that really, you know, uh, call things out of us and 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 uh, develop uh, us and challenge us in all kinds of ways. And and you know, um, not just individually, but but create all kinds of uh, rich encounters interpersonally. Um, you know, from from games like Dungeons and Dragons to you know a, a variety of other multiplayer games um, in in the computer game space. Um, and you know, um, games. Um, Games are super powerful um, human tools um, that uh, that produce all kinds of goods beyond uh, just fun, right? Not not to diminish the, the idea of an importance of fun, um, but they're tools for learning, uh, for changing capability, for exploring capability, um, for exploring possibility, um, and so. Um, and so, um, the, the next slide sort of segues into, um, into, uh, um, seeing, seeing things quite differently. So, um, you know, um, the, the, the question of, you know, maybe AI, um, could, could mean alien intelligence, um, is, is something that came to me, um, in thinking about my, uh, my reflections on the film, um, my octopus teacher, um, and which again is a film that if people haven't seen, they, they really ought to. And I think it's a critical film, um, for the discussion of intelligence, um, and, and incredibly valuable, um, uh, to us, um, in, in the context of that discussion. Um, the, um, you know, the thing that the film dramatizes through the relationship of, of a human, uh, with, uh, with an octopus, um, is the the very persuasive idea that this is an encounter with a and very differently intelligent being um and it's the combination of those things that 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 it it feels right to say that that this be this other being this alien being uh is intelligent and also that that intelligence is very, very different from ours. So 
the recognition of that intelligence, the ability to recognize and, and dignify uh, uh, or, or re reciprocate and respect this, this alien as intelligent um, breaks the frame of the imitation game. Intelligence here isn't limited to being an imitator of our ideas of intelligence or our sense of our own uh, capabilities as intelligent beings. Um, but opens, opens us up to the possibility that other intelligences might be quite different from ours. Um, and that there's something to be interested in there. Um, there's something, you know, not to be threatened by, uh, but to be drawn into um, and curious about. Um, and uh, anyway, it, it, it really powerfully struck me um, that, um, that that opportunity opens up the space for something different in our thinking about and reaction to the promise of new intelligence. Um, and not, you know, one, I think it's important that we be able to see that there are other kinds of intelligence around us that we don't pay attention to as such. And two, that our encounter with those things um, may help us learn and better understand what we want or should want out of machine intelligence um, and what we might be able to have. Because again, um, insofar as we, we, you know, collectively are designers of and, and uh, uh, you know, will be consumers of machine intelligence, um, we can want them to be some things and, and not others. We could prefer them to be some things and not others. Um, so that's, that's worth our thinking about. Um, yeah, it's, let me pause. Yeah, what's interesting, what I think of when I think of this is maybe because we were just talking about, you know, AlphaGo was the real, the real genius of how AlphaGo was able to succeed was they stopped saying, hey, you're just trained on all these human games that have already been played and said, you know what, just go try to figure it out. Go try to figure out different ways to win. And it wasn't about imitating human moves anymore. It was about exploring the entire surface area of the game that had never been touched by human play just based on the fact that you know humans play this way and then this way and then this way and this way and it leads to a certain sort of like tree of outcomes you know that happen yet because of that there's a whole tree and other you know sort of surface area that was never touched and so AlphaGo developed a completely different style that is you know I think part of why you know that WTF moment in Lee's you know, face of like, this is weird. How did this even happen? And that alien intelligence is you could see happening in that game where earlier in the game, Go players were like, it made a big mistake. And then mm -hmm. later in the game, it was like, whoa, actually that was, nobody even saw that coming because it was a completely different way of approaching, you know, the game. That's a very myopic and focused example of what you're talking about on a much broader level. But Pat, you know, jump in, man. Yeah, no, I think um, I think that's right. Star is it's true of StarCraft as well, where uh, the you know the AI was doing things that you would never think to do that seemed dumb, but because it can execute so many actions at a time, it just did like a lot of brute force um, movements that you would never do as, as a StarCraft player. And it was all it's all based on reading pixels on a screen, right? So there's you know it has inputs, which is it has the controls, and it has outputs, which is it's reading the screen. 
and it's just running through games over and over again to train itself. And yep. so I think one thing we can't ignore with this kind of training is the level of computation you need to even fathom that that's a good way to go about solving a problem. To run through like millions of StarCraft games to train an AI would be incredibly expensive and time consuming in an era before like modern GPUs. So there's a technological underpinning substrate that allows us to ask certain questions or go about solving these questions in a certain way, which is interesting. So our technology allows us to ask um, different questions. But I think also if we look at ChatGPT, which is next word prediction, uh, the reason it works so well is because there's only so many words. There's like 40,000 words. So to be able to predict the next word, you have a finite set that you just kind of work through and you assign a probability to. I think what you're saying about this, you know, alien intelligence is that there are worlds out there where they're not like words. Words are a finite categorical set of things that we have and we can look up in a database. They're things we're used to. So when I see a word, I know what it means. And so they're very, very, very human. There are like stars in the sky and molecules in our bodies that are not, they don't have the same level of finite set. And they're very hard for us to like look at them and kind of know what's going on. Even modern drugs, we don't really know why they work. They just work and we put them in the notebook and said this helps with cough. And so there's, there is all kinds of um, inputs uh, that we could use, but we just don't have a way of making them finite enough to ask questions about them. So yep. we either have to like reduce the set of probabilities um, in the way sort of diffusion models work, where it's like, this is generally the kinds of images that you're going to want to see. This is a duck. And like we diffuse, we sort of like make our way to a picture of a duck through like layers of uh, running this algorithm. So we can uh, shrink the set or we have to expand our computational abilities, which means that we can look at a much larger set of possibilities and kind of work our way progressively using this intelligence. And I think both of those are on the horizon. But the question is, if you put this AI and made it look at something that's not as human as like the alphabet or words, what could it look at? Like, that's such a fascinating thing. What would, yeah. I mean, there's, there's no want, what would it want to look at, but what could it look at that would, that would be surprising to us? Yeah. So here, here's for, for folks who have been enjoying uh, and, and are interested in how sci-fi um uh, gives us a way of exploring questions like these, and 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 you know it's so so certain strains of it are so directly implicated in our thinking about AI, um, you know, and 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 especially if you've seen my octopus teacher, uh, there's an amazing novel um, that that came out in the last year or so called The Mountain in the Sea, um, and I think um, forget the guy's first name, but. Uh, last name's Naylor, I think, N-A-Y-L-E-R, but the mountain in the sea, people will find it. Um, and it is about uh, a, a really direct encounter with, uh, with a species of octopus um, in which the, the space of what you were just uh, describing, Patrick, is, is sort of richly explored. Um, and it becomes evident that uh, not only that, uh, th that these uh, animals are intelligent, but that they're, they're communicating in ways that we didn't believe were possible, but, but also which, which demonstrate that uh, 
that what they're thinking and how they're thinking is very, very different. And it's just super exciting and interesting, right? And again, I mean, I think we need more examples of, of um, different kinds of excitement about the possible futures um, that, that uh, you know, artificial intelligence might take us into. As it turns out, you know, I spent uh, a, about 10 months of the year in 2022, um, working with a group of people um, on uh, on an AI venture uh, concept, um, and it was seeing the movie My Octopus Teacher that that all of a sudden like blew a hole in the back of my head and and focused me in a particular way on what I thought was a, a really exciting uh, direction, um, which was. Um, you know, we had been talking about various ways in which um, you know, AI might interact in 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 progressive and and constructive ways with people, um, and we'd also been talking a lot about conversation, which is something I've been a student of um, for for a long time. Um, and I started uh, becoming interested in this question: um, Could we build an AI that could participate in human conversation? Um, and I definitely did not have a chat interaction paradigm in mind. Um, what the interaction, you know, user experience paradigm exactly might have been, you know, was 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 an open question, although sort of richly interesting from a design point of view. Um, but but what I got to through the, you know, sort of uh, ideas that this film uh, put in my head. Uh, and what they started doing in my head and in these conversations was the idea that um, this AI that we designed and invited into our conversations, um, we might call and think of as our teacher. And um, the idea was that by allowing it to listen into and participate in millions of human conversations um, that it, by being trained on that data of our conversations, not just the data of language, but the data of interactive conversations, which it understood being conducted between distinct individual people, um, would be a way of training uh, that intelligence, but also that it would create the opportunity for the intelligence to notice things about our participation as individuals and as a group um, and help us see things that we're not so good at seeing. So one of the big examples that I was thinking about at the time was the problem of unconscious bias, um, which is a big problem in all kinds of human interaction. And the problem, you know, the biggest practical problem, of course, about unconscious bias is right in the name. Because it's unconscious, <laughs> we're not aware of it. Um, and it's invisible to us. And often when it's reflected back to us, by another human, our first response is to get defensive. And the idea was that we might be able to design a machine and a presence of the machine and an experience of the machine that took some of that personal pressure out of that noticing um, and that the machine could quietly notice to us as an individual 
when we said something that perhaps we shouldn't, or perhaps we should be more reflective of. Um, anyway, I, I, I just got really excited about thinking about what, what that kind of experience uh, would be like and, and how differently um, it might be, uh, how different the intelligence of a machine might be that was trained not on sort of the dead artifactual data of, of text, but against the much more rich interaction data of real human conversation. Um, and to think about using conversation as a model for both the training of the intelligence, but also um, the capability of the intelligence. Because I think right now that, you know, we are stuck in a paradigm that is still very much arrested at the level of chat versus the capability of conversation. And the capability of conversation is a very, very high order human capability, which I would and have argued is how human beings create one of the most important forms and highest orders of intelligence, which isn't individual, isn't in our brains, isn't even in us as individuals, but something we produce together by interacting with each other in certain ways. I, I love this vision. I love this idea of the almost like, um, you know, you use the word teacher, but also coach, right? Like this is, you know, almost, um, you know, we could think of AI as performing different types of roles. And one of those, you know, can be, you know, the generative component where it's, you know, go ahead and go away and make this thing within a context that I've provided. And, you know, I'll tell you if I like it or not. And then there's more of the co-pilot uh, type role, which is what you're talking about, where it's, you know, AI is uh, along for the ride with us and helping us to, you know, see things that maybe we don't see. We had an episode uh, a while ago where I uh, shared the experience that I had with using a, a meeting co-pilot that would track, you know, how much I was talking, right. how many questions I asked, you know, if I was speaking too fast, how many different voices, you know, were on, uh, you know, at the moment. And it was great. And it had none of the emotion that, you know, that it, you know, speaking from, you know, a very practical perspective, and this is not working at the level that you're, you know, talking about. I think you're talking about something that's much, much higher level uh, in terms of its ability to work with us. And the, the, the feedback that came back was very much like, oh, good. Like it, it, was, it, it felt so good to know where I was wrong rather than feeling so bad to know where I was yeah. wrong. And I'm using the word strong, wrong strongly here. No, I, but let's I just say it. in terms of behavior that objectively I would not want to embody uh, yeah. in the contract before, you know, the, the, the conversation. Yeah, and I think, you know, what I want to notice in, in what you're calling attention to, um, and, and it's something I noticed um, and want others to notice and think about is, you know, um, the the dominant experience of of the current paradigm of generative AI um, is the encounter with a system that does things that we feel we can't do, or you know, it's it's an offloading of work and and thought, right? Rather than um, a, uh, a a something we're interacting with that is that, that we're learning from. And not just, um, you know, but very much like, you know, in, in the in this 
spirit of what you said and, and the illusion of the coach is, is, is a good one. Um, you know, we can get better at things. And in fact, you know, back to game playing, um, getting better is one of the most enriching things about playing games. It's, it's yeah. the biggest source of reward in playing games, not beating people, not beating opponents, getting better, right? Which is um, in a way, you know, beating yourself. And I want to call attention yeah. to, you know, the word competition. It originates from the Latin word competere, which means to strive together, yep. to get fit together. Meaning yep. that it's not about me beating you. It's about both of us getting stronger, you know, along the way and improving each other. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, again, um, uh, I am super excited about uh, the the futures that we can build with uh, with these new technologies. Um, but, you know, just as not all uses of iterations of um, uh, pathways of uh, technologies are equivalent, just as there are junky games uh, and and rich games. Um, you know, uh, thinking about what we want these games for, what we want these intelligences for, what the, we want these machines for, what they give to us, make possible for us. Um, uh, you know, to me, again, you know, thinking thinking back to my octopus teacher, I am much, much more intrigued and interested by the idea of um, starting to see the glimpses of uh, intelligence, machine intelligence, um, that we can um, invite into uh, in in an in an interesting way um, our world and and and, and encounter. Um, you know, the worlds uh, that they <laughs> live in differently from us um, and not see those worlds as being in some kind of zero-sum competition as, as you know, the, the, the most uh, uh, existentially dreading um, way of thinking about this goes. And not that that thinking comes from nowhere. I, I, I want to... I wanna, um, make make equally clear. Um, I think we have a lot to feel skeptical about. Um, I think mm -hmm. we have a lot to feel worried about. And and I think you know my worry, my main source of worry, isn't uh, you know that we're building machines um, you know that are going to make us our their slaves or or eliminate us you know in the various number of absurd scenarios, um, but simply the fact that whenever we develop technologies that can be used to create economic advantage, the tendency is to advantage the few and at the expense of the many. Um, that's, you know, one dimension of the critical danger we are already living within, right? To the point about a, a future that is already here um, and uh, increasingly evenly distributed, it certainly will become much more evenly distributed. That's that's a that's a future or a, 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 an idea about possible futures that I definitely think that we should resist. Um, you know, uh, a future um, in which um, we uh, are defeated 
um, in the way in which, uh, you know, we see uh, sort of dramatized in the experience of, of Kasparov and Lisa Dole. Um, but I don't think that's the future we have have to live inside. Um, you know, I think if we're not going to live inside those futures, um, then we meet, need to become, um, you know, uh, participants um, in building the futures that we want, um, even if that's only being vocal about asking for the futures that we want. Yeah, and I think the question of benefit is key here. Like, what is that benefit? And uh, I think the teacher metaphor is really good. And the game metaphor or like reality is really good. So you have this uh, teacher and it, uh, in, in, we were talking about feedback, right? You can get feedback and be defensive or you can get feedback and that's part of your game. That's part of your core game loop. And you're yeah. like, yeah, cool. I'm getting better at this skill. Someone's there to help me. There's a goal I care about that I'm getting closer to. And that, like, I think is inarguable that people get better through the play of the game that they're interested in. And so the question of benefit unevenly distributed, it seems unfair to me to allow some people to play this game and then um, have others who don't know the rules. And I think that's mm -hmm. in, in the same world of conversation. Like some people may not enjoy conversation because they don't know the rules of the game. Or you might right. not enjoy like working at a company because you don't or going to school or like learning about math. And so the real promise of this new teacher is it can meet you where you are and give you rules and put you on a level where you are at the edge of your capabilities, but you have an incentive and you have an immersion and you have somebody who's helping you to the next step. And to me, the biggest worry I have is that we we don't allow people to play the game like mm -hmm. that we kind of like fear the future so much that we protect the people who will make it better from that future for their own good uh, and so yeah there there are things to fear the things to to look forward to but i do think this notion that we should frame a game that everyone can play and the most amount of people can play um is a good pursuit can I can I build on that, Pat? And the, that's one fear. And on the other side, I think of like, what if AI just doesn't want to be our teacher anymore? What if it's like, this is like, you know what? I'm I'm bored. You guys are so far behind, and uh, you know, the, I wasn't put on Earth to do this. I was put on Earth to do something else. I'm more of a conqueror than you know a, a coach. And uh, you know, I have a different vision for the future, which is rather than people getting better, it's whatever. I'd like who knows, right? Octopus teacher, alien intelligence. We have no idea. Um, and I, 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 then I think about like why we teach, you know, each other and why we're like bringing each other up and how so much of AI is, is going to be us. We're always going to be a part of it. It was, you know, like we're there at the inception and it's at the, you know, sort of like root of the tree. And no matter how many times it branches, that's always there at the beginning, unless there's a from scratch version that AI builds at some point, in which case we're still part of that, you know, generational tree of it being trained on our language, the next word prediction, right? To an extent, we could argue this. What I want to get to is there's this quote that I really love from um, Lao Tzu. And uh, this is, you know, from the Tao Te Ching. And it's, you know, what is, what is, what is a good, good man or what is a bad man, but 
jeez, oh, I'm gonna mess this up. Okay, I got it, I got it. What is a good man but a bad man's teacher? What is a bad man but a good man's job? And that there's this symbiotic mm. connection between somebody who has something to teach and someone who has something to learn. And that there's always, at least in a human to human context, a value in that exchange and a natural almost flow and balancing of energy in a metaphysical sense that's required, right? Um, and I wonder if that will carry through to the machines that we create. I love, I love that you ended up there, uh, Alan. Um, the Tao Te Ching is, is a hugely important text uh, to me. And I, you know, again, it's, it, it sounds, uh, you know, it's, it's a work of ancient Chinese philosophy, much, much more accessible than people might think. Um, and it's, it's a short book. Uh, it's very easy to read. Um, uh, I have a couple of closing thoughts um, that I'll use the Tao um, uh, and, and, um the subject of fear that pat brought up um and try to bring us uh together into um the thought uh with with a kind of uh a kind of hopefulness um about the futures that are ahead of us um you know i think like the the um one of the biggest fears uh is the end right um and uh, and death is is what we often call the end, um, and the end uh, death uh, that death represents, of course, is the end of the game, game over. Um, and um, I ran into a really, what I find a really beautiful and comforting thought um, from the American Buddhist philosopher Ram Das, um, and what he said was, death is perfectly safe. Um, for me, it's become a really important idea uh, to meditate on. Um, we don't need to worry about it. It's part of our life. It, it will come for us. It comes for us all. Um, we don't need to fear it. It's perfectly safe. The other thing is, in the meanwhile, um, let's play the game. Let's play the good game. Let's seek out the good games. Um, the, the Tao Te Ching... Um, uh invites players into a game um uh, the game in that case is is the dao uh the dao is is the is is the word um that we often roughly translate as the way or the path um the dao de ching uh offers us an opportunity to see the game differently to play the game differently that's its wisdom um, it invites us into, uh, all kinds of ways of, uh, of experiencing and seeing the possibilities of play differently. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's one of the best things, uh, it's, it's one of the best, best games I've ever found. So I, I appreciate Alan bringing it up in the context of this conversation. Um, and, uh, and for me, I think that's a good place to end. You guys may have a couple of wrap-up questions or, or thoughts, um, but. Yeah, um, I guess summarizing that last part, yeah. I'm going to watch the, my Octa's teacher. I'm going to read Tao Te Ching. And um, if, uh, if death is perfectly safe, life is for taking risks, walking into the unknown and figuring out what happens. So yeah, this has been an awesome conversation. 100%.
Thank you, guys. I forgot philosopher on the end, and uh, you know that was really really great to uh, you know have this uh, you know always a new angle uh, from Michael. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts with us, man. Um, it's really really insightful and and different from what we hear in a lot of the tech echo chamber. And I love that you always bring a, a heightened perspective, or at least you know. Look, maybe that's stacking things in a different uh, direction. You bring a very thoughtful, philosophical, like, you know, what does this mean? And, and how do we interpret this through not the short-term understanding of tech, but the long-term understanding of uh, human experience that we've built up over thousands of years? How do we interpret this? Uh, which I, I find more helpful uh, and I think maybe has more staying power as well. So thank you, Michael. Appreciate you, bud. Yeah, thank you guys. It's a pleasure talking to you as always. R really appreciate the opportunity. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to more. I look forward to more play. Till next time. Till next time. I know.